double down on leaders who are seeking the best option for kids. Like, listen for that. There's a different type of young adult out there now. They're not so wedded to the old institutions or the way we used to do things. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. Welcome to Reality Check. I'm Jeannie Allen. We're on the cusp of a holiday season, and I feel like I'm opening a present early with the lineup of my all-star guests today. We have, in no particular order, Dr. Howard Fuller, civil rights activist, education reform advocate, and nationally known academic. Howard recently retired as a distinguished professor of education at Marquette University. And during this year's Democratic primary elections, he eloquently spoke truth to power with an open letter to Joe Biden about charters and school choice. Kevin Chavis, President of Academics, Policy, and Schools for K-12, Inc., the nation's leading provider of proprietary curriculum and on-school programs for students pre-K through high school, a former member of D.C. City Council and a member of the CER Board of Directors. J.C. Heisinga, entrepreneur, education reformer, and business leader, founder of National Heritage Academies, 90-plus tuition-free public charter schools serving more than 60,000 students, K-8. I know you guys cannot believe I've got all these people on today, but I do. Two more amazing people. Lisa Keegan, writer and speaker on critical issues facing American education, having cut her teeth both as a former school superintendent, state school superintendent, Arizona, assemblywoman who led the charge for education reform, which is why Arizona is number two today on our Parent Power Index, thanks to Lisa, almost entirely alone. And finally, last but not least, our, uh, our global leader and innovator, Mickey Revenaugh, Executive VP of Connections, Director of New School Models for Pearson Global Schools, a pioneering provider of K-12 online learning, and oh my folks, don't we need that today um, more than ever. Welcome, and how are you all? So great uh, to be here. Great. Despite COVID, we're doing pretty good. <laughs> well, it's great to hear you. And for those of you listening only out there on Reality Check, I am also seeing them. And um, we are enjoying this um, inaugural issue of the third season of Reality Check um, with a Zoom and video and audio. So let me just um, help uh, level set our listeners and the reason I wanted to bring you all here and do this is because I just thought, you know, we're once again going through another change, another change. Uh, forget 2020 and what a crazy blank show it's been. Um, but we're all going through another change. And it's a new administration, which we've all been through at least a couple of times together and separately. It's a lot of changes in states. Um, there's changes in learning and approaches, changes in delivery. We have parents leaving public, charter, and private, creating their own micro-schools. And I thought, how do we actually help the rest of the world uh, process what's really going on? So, Mickey, I ended with you. Let me start with you, since you've got this great global perspective. What are, what are the things that you would say most of all from sort of your senior statesman, you know, <laughs> on, on, on what's happening and how we, how we help people understand it through the context of history? Wow, um, uh, a light little question. Um, so I think we're at this incredibly profound inflection point where so many of the things that we've thought and talked about in education reform writ large, um, which really I think comes down to what do we do to make sure that every learner um, has the best possible chance to thrive um, and sparkle um, in terms of their, their education. I think we're actually at a point where those tools have been um, sort of um, uncovered, um, partly by the pandemic, um, partly by all the twists and turns and changes that we've seen in education over these past couple of decades to really be within our reach, um, to break down the barriers between K through 12 and higher education, um, to ensure that every student has a really personalized uh, team of people who are uh, rooting for their success, um, and that includes their families and, and their schools and others, and that technology um, is actually finally getting to the point where it can um, uh, level the playing field 
for everyone and allow every learner, regardless of zip code, um, to, um, to really reach their ultimate full potential. We're at this inflection point because it could just as easily go back the other direction, right? And we certainly have been here many times before, but I'm personally feeling kind of optimistic. There's nothing like a really great crisis um, and a really stormy political season to um, sort of leave us on the shores of where we might go from here. So how do you think that might um, be different or same, Howard, than what we've seen in the past? Uh, I'm the pessimist on this, probably, <laughs> because uh, I've heard all of this inflection point so many times in my life. And the only thing that really changes is the level of oppression of poor people in this country. And so I was just on a board, meet, board meeting call of our school yesterday and listening to the challenges that are facing uh, our, our teachers, our principal, and our students and their families. To be honest with you, there's nothing about what is currently happening right now that gives me any optimism that the kids that I care about are gonna be better off. In fact, I think in the short term, they certainly are gonna be worse off. And what I'm really concerned about is whether or not the long-term impact of what we are currently going through will be mitigated uh, anytime soon. So I wish I could be more like, you know, in the season and all of that, but it's really hard to be um, optimistic when I see the number of people who are dying in this country who do not have to die. When I see that all of a sudden uh, my kids uh, are all of a sudden now essential workers. And so that we now have uh, some of our seniors in particular working 60 to 80 hours a week. They're being exploited by employers uh, who, are, who have them working these long hours, not paying benefits, not being concerned about how they possibly are gonna uh, learn. So while I agree with Mickey that when you look at it, there's all of these things that would say, if we did this right, here's what could happen. But I'm not in the group of people who believe that it's going to be done right, uh, particularly for poor kids and, um, you know, poor Black children that I've been concerned about all of my life. And the issues they are facing and, and so many are facing today, Howard, um, as you often talk about and write about, are, are enormous. Um, your contribution, though, when you think about it, 1990 uh, bringing the first options to kids in Milwaukee ever. The fact that you're talking about your school as a charter school. So, so Lisa, jump in here. Um, does Howard have uh, more reason to be optimistic, or um, not that we want to change it, Howard? But I am gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna bring it to light. How do we, how do we shift from things have been very difficult and worse for many people to there's a, there's always a promise with the newness and freshness of people in many places, whether we agree with their politics or not, whoever we are, right? Lisa, you've seen this through five or six administrations too? Yeah, so yeah, 30, 30 years. Um, I, I think it's best to take Howard to heart, as I know everybody on this uh, Zoom has done for decades and not to try to gloss over what is happening for families right now. And I'm, as you know, psychotically optimistic. Howard knows this as well. So uh, we can count on me to be out of touch with what's really possible. I have spent um, the, the grace of this time period is, you know, they're few and far between other than a beautiful granddaughter who might wake up and I'll bring her on screen. But, but the reading we were able to do this summer during the civil unrest that I'm ashamed to say I should have been doing for years, you know, a lot of history, a lot of why this is an unbroken string. I knew it intellectually. I've talked about it before. Hadn't read it deeply enough. And I came away um, again. I am optimistic, Jeannie, but I'm optimistic this way that I, you know, when the New York times list was all black writers in America, for a given moment there this summer, late fall. Finally, people I think wanting to understand what is going on for our, our families and our youth in black communities, communities of color, um, 
I'm hoping that it it took and it wasn't just summer reading. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just some practice and that we need to articulate our work in education in these terms so much more strongly. It is not about, you know, governance of schools, even though, right, strong believer in the charter uh, systems and choice system that we all advocate. We're about equity and access and quality and fit and for whatever reason, our own movement has not been fabulous as of, on the whole, right, of arguing in these terms that it is a desperate situation for a family who cannot find a great quality fit for their child in schooling. They're already facing this in so many other ways. Our job is to make sure they don't have to face the inequity in schooling. We know how to do that. And there are some big, big questions doing away with school districts. School districts are old red line districts, and we ought to talk about that more. Um, it, so I, I just feel like um, I am optimistic, but I am, I, I was really um, schooled, I would say, this summer, and I've changed how and why I think we can do this. Still, still think we can. We just have to get serious. So, Kevin, let me bring you in there. Um, lots of inequity. You have been uh, at this really interesting center point, uh, much like Mickey, where because of the inequities in education this year, people have to flock to where they can get it. Online education has turned out to be from, has gone from like a person nobody wants to bring to the dance to the prom queen, right? And uh, that means that makes you the king, Kevin, uh, of online learning. Um, but yet there's so many people, particularly our poor and kids of color who don't have any access to technology, who don't have the kind of packets, which we'll talk about in a minute, that NHA was able to send to 300,000, you know, families and kids and parents overnight. Um, what are you seeing as the way forward, given the discussion? Well, wow, Jeannie. I have swirling thoughts. You talk about prom queen and king. It made me think about that old school movie, Carrie. So I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, our, we're facing a day what each generation faces and many generations don't, answer, don't have a good answer to the question. And that is, uh, what about the children? How about the children? What are we really doing for the children? Uh, you know, we've allowed the politics of the day and the fact that, as, as Howard alluded to, so many of these things to, that relate to a child's well-being have been put on the back burner that so many families feel they, they don't even have the luxury to figure out their kids' education when they're trying to put food on the table. Um, but, but I do think that one thing I noticed, and I'm sure Mickey can allude to this, can relate to this, um, is that this pandemic and all the civil unrest could lead us to a place where there is a parent power explosion. Uh, I can tell you on our enrollment lines, um, we saw a shift. We, we have standard questions. We ask families that call us and uh, many of the parents who came to us, their kids were behind academically and ask some questions, how the kid doing in, in academics? And they're like, oh, well, you know, he's doing the best they can. But now we are getting more educated consumers about education. You know, they, they want to like, give me the number one parent said to my son's fifth grade math teacher so I can email them before I decide to enroll. Um, I think that now more families and more parents are forced to actually see what the day, a day in the life of their kids' education is like, and they don't like it. And so they're asking more probing questions of school districts. I think that it, there is a chance, you know, you've got the pessimism, optimism, and the realism. I think that there is a realistic chance that this could lead to a parent power push that we haven't seen because of the realities of what parents have to face. Um, and the other thing that uh, I think will end up being, it lead to more pain before gain, but I think the gain is inevitable, is 
there's a different type of young adult out there now. They're not so wedded to the old institutions or the way we used to do things, just like they exploded into the streets in the wake of the death of George Floyd. At some point in time, there will be some semblance of those young people who say, particularly these young parents that I talk about who call our, our enrollment centers, they say, hey, this is not acceptable. We're not going to accept this just because that's the way it's always been. You're really not educating our kids. Now, I think the challenge is tying that all in a nice organized bowl, a ribbon and bowl, so that it, you know, people can, can advocate you know, consciously and strategically. That's always a challenge. But I, I do think that the inflection point I see is the same old, same old, um, just won't won't fly. I think that you will see potentially, as I said, more pain, uh, but hopefully lead to gain. Well, I hope it doesn't go back in the box, right? So JC Huizinga, NHA Schools, National Heritage Academy, let me let me bring you in to help sum up um, this, this section of reality check. Uh, parent power is something you've always been fond of. We just heard Kevin Chavis talk about it. The notion that young people today are different and they're going to want to demand um, and be more choosy, right? So how do we make sure that um, we sustain uh, and increase scrutiny of schools, um, still recognizing that there's so much um, disrepair and inequity out there? What's the, wh where do we go next? Particularly as we look again about another political change in our nation. Well, Jeannie, I, I... I think what we, what parents are starting to realize is government entities are probably pretty good at operating schools, but they, they're better at operating schools than helping kids learn what they need to learn. And as they understand that, I think COVID has become the match that lit the fuse that's going to cause that, uh, that inflection point that Mickey was referring to. And I think uh, whether it's micro schools or pods or whatever, will become a greater, uh, a greater percentage of education in the future as parents are looking for a middle ground between what the districts are offering or homeschool, uh, which some parents are, in some cases are working or they're not equipped to do homeschool for whatever reason, they're looking for another alternative. And I think, uh, I think we're going to see a whole different landscape in the future. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what, uh, what would cause Howard to be a little bit more optimistic about what the future might bring. How do we get it right, Howard? Before we go there, I want I want Howard to jump in there, but let me stand you for a minute, uh, JC. So we're making a transition, and and there's talk about President-elect Biden uh, appointing the head of or a former head of the National Teachers Union, the NEA, um, as education secretary or one of the many quote unquote I say um, scholars who supports that kind of line. You've been good friends with the uh, right now outgoing education secretary, Betsy DeVos. I kind of want to tell people you thought Betsy DeVos was bad. You're going to get Lily Eskelson. You're going to be in really big trouble. Um, forget the politics uh, of it. What, what, do we, what do we say and what do we do, if anything, about an education secretary who's not only diametrically opposed to the practices that could address some of these inequities, um, but might even want to shut them down. So first of all, I'm, I'm a big fan of Betsy DeVos. I think uh, when it comes to school choice, when it comes to parent power and, and the right of parents to choose what's best for, for their child, Betsy has done more than any other education secretary. And, uh, and I, I think we need to be grateful for that. Uh, what will the future look like under a new uh, uh, Biden administration? I think uh, 
I'm hoping that uh, maybe as we look to the Obama administration, uh, that may be an indication of what the future will look like. Uh, so, uh, of course, Biden was vice president under the Obama administration. The Obama administration actually did some good things for uh, for education choice. When you stop and look at what uh, uh, what the race to the top has done. Uh, in Michigan here, it removed the cap on charter education. And so hopefully, whether it's intended or unintended consequences, hopefully, I tend to be an optimist. I think there are still good things ahead. Okay, so let's go back to our resident pessimist, <laughs> Fuller in Milwaukee. So stay on just education with me because otherwise I'll have to morph into a whole nother podcast on all sorts of... <laughs> Not qualified to talk about Howard. What could uh, we do to make life better for kids, given the environment when it comes to education? What's the prescription that we should be fighting for? Well, I mean, I, I think we need to obviously continue to fight to empower parents. I mean, I, I've, I've not lost uh, one measure of enthusiasm for that being extremely important. Um, what, what I know, though, is that, that that fight is going to be much, much more difficult, uh, not, not only because we have an administration that has sold out uh, to the teachers union. I don't, I don't think there's any debate about that or you know, if there is, I don't I don't know who's debating it, because it seems clear to me that that's the direction that they've gone. But the, but the issue is that a lot of the fights that we're going to have are going to be at the local level still, particularly when you begin to talk about charters. It's, it's, it's a state fight, even though clearly, you know, you would want someone nationally who was supportive and who was providing air cover and also providing federal funds. We still have to fight a lot of these issues out at the local level. And in a place like Wisconsin, that fight is going to be made more difficult because the the bipartisanship that you would need and want is almost impossible in the toxic political environment that we're currently in. And so what happens is that some of the people who would be supportive of issues like charters and other form of parent choice are deaf on every other issue that impacts the families who would be choosing. And so from, from where I said, another reason for my pessimism is just the difficulty of building across partisan lines that 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 was more possible uh, uh, several years ago. So, Jeannie, I'm not uh, when, when I say I'm a pessimist. I don't want people to be confused that pessimism means you don't fight, because in 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 my world you fight even when victory is not possible because not the fight is to co-sign on the injustice. I just think that the nature of the fight and the, 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 the potential alliances that need to be built to, to advance the fight are gonna be much more difficult, at least in the short term. And, and it comes to that speaking out about it, right? Lisa Keegan, uh, when you were state superintendent in Arizona, I'll never forget one of the visits I made to you you sat down after meeting and you said, I need to introduce you to blah, 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 the head of the Arizona Education Association. Jeannie, honestly, you are going to love her. I think we have a lot in common. And I wanted to throw up. And I was like, you can't, <laughs> period. But you did get her to be strong on accountability on many levels, even if she wasn't strong on choice, at least for a little while. But the point was you reached out and basically said, here's where I am. Here's my agenda. We'd love you to be part of it. Yeah. Right. Also, hey, or we're gonna come after you. Like, and how do we teach people to do that now? Because I think there's an awful lot of folks who run around saying either we can't do that or um, we don't wanna really go after people in that kind of a way. Yeah. I, I, yeah, Jeannie, I, I I just think we have to double down on talking to people and not apologizing for the way we see this and articulating why, right? 
uh, and also, but reaching out to them and listening for something we might have, we might have a little bit of agreement, you know, it might just be about something that's not the subject we're talking about, but we can get there. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting compromise, you know, compromising away our basic values to that end. I don't, but I don't dislike, you know, our opponents. It's not, it's not personal for me. And I do think we, part of a leadership role in education is that we are role modeling you know, for our children. Look, we're disagreeing about means to an end, uh, but we got to define the end unequivocally is quality for kids. You know, as Kevin said, what is happening for the children? And so that, that's where we begin and end. And we keep talking about it and we keep telling our stories. Um, you know, and in Arizona, I know you, you all know the Arizona story, but charters are still coming on very strong. Districts have been in decline for the past decade in real terms. Charters are they're going to cross, right? They're, they're going to cross. And what's really happening is the choice. It's choice to quality schools. That same thing's happening in the district. If you defined high quality district schools as charter schools and looked at their choice component, uh, they look like charter schools, right? Because in Arizona, we're fluid over the borders. Less than half of the students in Maricopa County, which is the Phoenix area, attend their assigned school. We're utterly disrupted here, right? We're our own little enclave of, I don't know what the hell goes on anywhere else anymore, <laughs> but we're open to it here. And now in the middle of COVID, uh, we've got one of the best leaders out of uh, Black Lives Matter, a woman named Janelle Woods for, uh, um, she had a Black Mothers Forum has, and Jean, you're well aware, but uh, Janelle has led one of these pods and they were just furious at the treatment of their kids during the COVID experience. No, nobody, yeah, overnight packet. I mean, JC, which was magnificent by the way, they never got anything. And they realized that the urgency and the vigor they were seeing in COVID was probably what was going on before COVID. And that there was no urgency before, as you know, Kevin, you said, people are getting a look inside their kids' classrooms. This is what it looks like. Was your school up in arms and ready to get down to it and do what they needed to do? If they weren't during COVID, they weren't before either. And I think that's a really powerful lesson for parents. Uh, and I do think it's going to change it. I remember Janelle and another group of parent uh, leaders we had on one of the programs say that they also didn't realize until, but they didn't realize till now, yes, they knew there were issues, how money flowed. And so now we have the demand for fund the family, hashtag fund the family, fund the parents, which has been at the heart of so much of the, what do you want to call it, ed reform movement, educational choice, education opportunity, equal opportunity. But it's been about money. And maybe, Mickey, if we just done a lousy job of articulating that, why did it take a pandemic? Remember we used to say when you were creating Connections Academy created with a lot of the support of the people on this podcast, the first uh, student hotline in the wake of Katrina when people were scurrying, didn't know what to do, we stood up a hotline and Connections and others helped support it and we got kids into schools and then Charter stepped up and did all that. And that's great history and there's tons written about it if you're interested in learning about it out there. But the bottom line is it was about power and money. And so it shouldn't take, it shouldn't have took a hurricane, it shouldn't take a pandemic. Do you see globally and in your work any of this shifting in terms of the, is it just a handful of us that are having conversations or is this conversation much bigger than some people suspect? I think it's much bigger. Um, there's two things that, that occurred um, on the, in, during the pandemic that I think were just um, eye-opening. One was that um, uh, members of teachers unions and teachers unions in general that were dead set against online learning would not have countenanced this be possibly be a good way of educating kids. All of a sudden were the ones that were demanding that everybody go remote. Um, and that was partly to, you know, protect the health of, of adults, right? Which um, nothing wrong with that. Um, but all of a sudden, a 360 degree turn around, you know, what could possibly be the basis for, for education. The other thing that really struck me was um, a piece that um, the CEO of the Baltimore City Schools 
uh, district wrote about um, Zoom classes blowing the doors and walls off of the classroom. And no longer would ever would a parent ever believe trust us again, um, because they got to see up close and personal what school was really like. That happened all over the world, by the way, um, and in places where the um, sort of uh, school reform, ed choice, parent power movements were much less um, robust um, because there's just been a deeper um, tradition of schools sort of having like moats around them <laughs> in terms of keeping parents out. Um, so I think I, I do see that um, a new generation of parents who are now been radicalized a little bit by what's happened during the pandemic um, and the um, reckoning for racial justice in the United States and around the world, no longer being satisfied to, to kind of trust us, trust the experts, turn their kids' education over and not have a direct hand in it. What that's actually gonna look like, I think it's really um, interesting to see. A lot of it does have to do with money. And I think it's absolutely also true that um, state and local governments are under tremendous stress right now. And that's true in the United States and around the world. Um, education is always the last in line, um, right, in terms of, um, of funding. And when everyone is in a funding crisis, I am a little bit worried about what the resource drain um, could look like um, in the days ahead. On the other hand, I balance that against the fact that, um, that people are really impassioned and actually now have had a little bit of experience sort of taking their kids' education into their own hands. I don't think you put that genie back into the bottle. Genie, so to speak. Don't put that genie back into the bottle. <laughs> can't, put, can't put a lot of it back in the bottle. How do we move towards money following kids, JC? How do we move to where, to where, to Mickey's point? I mean, you can't turn this around and whatever amount of resources are out there, how do we shift it? And is that the answer? whether a parent wants to pick your school, somebody else's schools, create their own school, are we finally at that point? Yeah, I, I think it happens on a state-by-state -state basis. In Michigan, we've, uh, we're a long ways down that road. But as that happens, I think, uh, I think the institution, uh, the institutional interests will, will fight back uh, because the infrastructure that's been built around public education uh, needs needs those funds to continue to operate. And uh, you're right, it's going to be a continual battle. I think as the unions push back, we're, uh, we're going to have to invest that power in the parents even more. And it's the parents that are the key to making the, the difference. And besides parents, which is the first uh, level, if you will, of accountability, I think you'd all agree. Uh, Kevin Chavis, what other kinds of accountability can we expect are going to be uh, fought? Um, what are you thinking about that these days? I'm struck by, uh, you know, the comments of everyone. I think, you know, Howard's right. The action is in the States. JC alludes to that. And what's interesting is that we had some of our biggest gains in the ed reform, school choice, parent choice movement with divided governments in states. And um, rarely do we get what we want when one party controls everything. And so uh, this idea of coalition building that Howard alluded to, uh, and of course parents are a big part of it, but the coalition building among leaders is gonna be key. Now, there's a, a school of thought, as Howard has uh, enunciated, that it's virtually impossible to build that coalition in this toxic political environment. And, and logically, that makes sense. But you know, if, if someone asked me five years ago, what I see, you know, Rand Paul, Cory Booker, and Donald Trump talking about criminal justice reform, I would have said it never would happen. And, and that's not a sign of optimism. I think that's a sign of, of us forcing ourselves to think more strategically about who do we need, if, they're going to, if there's gonna be a divided government, and there will be, state by state is clear. There was no blue wave and it's, it's a divided government. And if state by state, there are certain things that need to happen to, to keep kids' interests front and center, who are the 
likely unlikely allies? And what's the best way to engage them? And again, to Howard's point, does that mean that, you know, if you're an urban African-American legislator who has hints of wanting to do this stuff that you persuade a Republican colleague, they need to support aged dependent children in the, you know, when in the past they never did. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that one of our challenges is the, the thing that has kept us together, our united commitment to parent choice really allowed us to put blinders on the fact that we come from different political perspectives and there may be other things we just don't talk about as much because we're, we're, we're united here. We may have to seep into some of these other areas just to get the coalitions that we need to make things happen. I think that's a very fair point. Howard? Yeah, I, I think as I sit here and listen, I think for me, the most important thing is to listen to you all because I think the points that you all are making are things that I need to think about. I think I always see my role though, is to say, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but here's also what's happening to, <laughs> you know, the poorest people and, and, and the people who right now are not positioned to be able to take advantage of even progress that is being made. And so I don't, I don't ever want people to feel like I'm just saying, oh, you know, I just want to throw cold water on it. I'm just trying to make sure that as we talk about these things, that those views are, are taken into account. Because the, the, the people that I try to represent are not normally represented in, in these discussions and tables and, 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 and whatever. And we got to make sure that, that their issues and concerns don't get lost in the process. Um, the, the thing I would say that was instructive to me was, uh, and, and it, that also fuels some of what I'm saying, and I don't know if Kevin and others want to speak to it, but you all know when, when, uh, when uh, Senator Scott and Lamar Alexander uh, put that bill together and, and the effort was to try to do something to save private schools as a part of the COVID release. And you know, it was, I mean, I talked to Corey, I talked to Dwight, I talked to people who you could ordinarily on the Democratic side get to say, well, yeah, I could be supportive of that. And I'm telling you, there was none of that. There was none of that, I can be supportive of that, just because their view was to be supportive of that, was to somehow be viewed as supporting Trump. No way in hell am I going to do that? And so now we're in a situation where I'm very worried about a lot of Catholic schools, for example, surviving on the other side of this, right? Schools that have historically played very important roles in communities, you know, in places like Chicago and Milwaukee and whatever. And, and so, so what I'm trying to get at is that while I think the, 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 the new way of learning is like very important, you don't just throw out the old way of learning. You know, it's like that, that's one of the things I learned from reading that book, New Power, right? Is, 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 is that while you, while you try to understand the exercise of new power, you also want to understand what was good about old power. And, and so, in, so in the process of talking about, you know, like uh, distance learning and uh, asynchronous learning and all these things that we're talking about, there's also some things that are called schools. That, 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 that function in communities and, and play a broader role than just learning itself. And so to, to some extent, we have to be concerned about how some of that continues on the other side uh, of, of, of the pandemic. And, 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 and what I'm talking about is the alliances that it's gonna take to try to make sure that that occurs. That, that schools themselves, be they Catholic, have served enormous role, whatever schools that are playing that great role in communities continue to thrive, even if that means it's not that fancy shiny penny today that is online. Totally, totally get it. And in fact, some of the evolution that many of us are involved with of those schools and others are critical. All, as I like to say, all of our tools, all the arsenal has to be all on the table. You know, we can't, we can't leave any of it there. And, and, and Kevin, I want to jump on and, and, see to pop in here too and all of you to comment on this in our last couple of minutes here in reality check this notion that you just raised about how we were all able to kind of um, isolate and silo our interest in parental choice and forget about some of the other things um, that we've disagreed with one of the areas that 
um, the movement or the sectors or the various people, whatever we're calling it today in the philanthropic community to get money, um, which clearly I'm not doing a good job of because I can't, couldn't give a hoot about those terms, um, is this notion of, of who runs the schools and who is permitted. And so it is no secret that I don't care whether you are uh, for, by, non, whatever, it shouldn't matter what your school governance, your school tax status is. And we have a huge problem right now in, um, in and among people working in charter schools and other forms of education reform that think there is something wrong with a company managing education as if that's a brand new thing. And that's where we're going to fall down unless we solve that because President-elect Biden can stand up and say, oh, I'm for charter schools, just not those charter schools, which is basically what the NEA said 30 years ago when they said we're for public school choice, just not that kind. And so, JC, let's start with you since you were one of the true, true innovators, first entrepreneurs, to say, let me start a company and figure out how I can actually help serve kids without having to beg, borrow, and steal for money. And how do we address that? Maybe we can go around about this for-profit, non-profit thing, because it is driving me nuts. Yeah. Well, I'm a big believer in the free market and the competitive system. And when you stop and, and look at the fact that every student, whether they're black or white or Dutch or Chinese, it doesn't matter if they're American, they all count the same, right? So through the free market system, we're going to find ways of connecting, of providing connectivity where there isn't connectivity because we're going to reach out and we're going to find those students who might not be findable because they're worth something. And, and so if you don't have a competitive system, a free market system, if Milton Friedman wasn't right in what he had to say, we've got some serious problems for the future of this country. Well, Jimmy, let me speak to that. I think this has been alluded to, the veneer is sort of stripped away from the perceived unfettered power base of school, the neighborhood school or school districts. And I think the way you build those coalitions, you talk about unlikely allies, is uh, one, I talked about the parents and, and you know, they, they now are asking questions about their kids' education they've never asked before. And then secondly, believe it or not, they're enterprise and superintendents who are facing the reality of what they have to deal with every day and they need help that because of union rules or whatever, they, they don't have the internal bandwidth to fix what ails them. So they are aggressively looking for help. And Vicki knows this. You know, if you're, if you're a major school district, and I'm talking about major, any 10,000 students or more, and to run any type of meaningful online virtual program, you need an adaptable curriculum that works online. You need a secure platform. People have been, my goodness, sh uh, sharing stories about Zoom being hacked into. And you know this happens in school districts. And you need a robust teacher training program to help train teachers who are used to the brick and mortar setting to understand how to utilize tools, best practices, AI and the like to engage students online. And school districts just can't do that on their own, most of them. Uh, especially if they haven't dabbled in that. So, and, and at the same time, most of them will get a pass in terms of their funding for this year, but next year, because they're all uh, 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 achieving shrinkage in their numbers, they're going to start losing money. So the reality, their reality is, you know, this whole for-profit number, I need help. So where do I go for help? And parents' reality is, I've got to educate Johnny, Jamal, Jose, where do I go to get that education, particularly in, in fact, uh, realizing the fact I don't want to lose a year of education in, with my kids. 
So I think that this is where the base of the end user's needs can triumph over the politics of the day. Again, if it's channel right, and that's how you build those coalitions. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you talk to any parent out here, you know, I've got kids and grandkids, all of you, it, it, it's very frustrating. And all of them, it's like a light bulb has gone on because they have trusted their kids to a system and assume certain things that may or may not have been accurate. And and that when you have that question mark out there, then that that leads to uh, further exploration and more openness to something else. And Mickey, I bet you've been able to do things over over time that to Kevin's point, you know, people were coming to you, they needed it. You were able to build it because you were, were operating in a tax paying company environment where um, innovation is something that we had the resources to invest in. In fact, that was uh, required for the company to survive and thrive, right? So this idea of maintenance versus innovation, you know, the innovation really comes uh, often in the private sector because that's where the resources are available to do that. That's where the rewards come from as well. One of the things that I think is so interesting is um, if you ask young people where they learn, um, sometimes they'll say school, more often they'll say all kinds of other things um, on the internet, among their friends and beyond. And so this sort of uh, disaggregation of learning from a building, but then use of the building as a place for gathering people and providing services that can't reasonably be provided online. I think we're gonna see these things all start to realign a little bit um, around that really critical relationship between a teacher and a student and between students and, and one another. Um, and that may take all kinds of different forms. And the places where the innovation is happening on that, um, that especially young people are paying attention to, um, are happening among the ed tech companies, among the, uh, you know, the uh, researchers and innovators and people who are shaking things up a little bit. And those are um, very often either in the private sector and the philanthropic center, not necessarily in the people that we have sent our tax dollars to, to make that happen. And, and Lisa, and then finally, I want to end with Howard. Um, how uh, in your time uh, working in this, advising, still uh, very much nurturing the Arizona education um, environment, do you see different parties taking these issues or is it just all kind of jumbled and not really an issue at all where you are? Oh yeah. Oh no, it's it's an issue. Um, largely because it's uh, it's a national issue in Arizona, not so much, right? Remember, Arizona was we maintained our private charter schools, our for-profit charter schools for quite a while. So, it it kind of happened to us. I I, I think that the bigger issues, and it was Kevin was just saying, and Mickey's talking about, um, and maybe all of us are saying, and I so appreciate listening to this group of people. For those who are listening to this, Jeannie, you know, I would say double down on leaders who are seeking the best option for kids. Like, listen for that. We we did narrow all. I mean, it's true. We stayed on a narrow strip of agreement. And unfortunately, that narrow strip of agreement has, I think, gotten a little stale. And this is what I was trying to say earlier. It invited a lot of people who agreed about a lot of other stuff. And that ended wagging the dog. Right. We got to freshen up the coalition. And I think that there are folks on on all sides of the aisle. It's not these parties. Our parties are so weird now that I don't know. I don't know what they are anymore, where the where they begin. So look for people who are in it for students over time, repeatedly and coal, make a coalition with them, Jeannie. And issues like what's for profit and nonprofit should subsume in, is that gonna work for kids in a really unique environment, which quite frankly has required, this has required private companies to come in. And nobody, you know, nobody had uh, needed their smelling salts and just said, no way, I'm not using a packet that came from so-and-so. Uh, you, you did what you had to do. You know, I had our grandson, I was teaching him. I, you know, I, I feel for families who did it. Um, and so I do think we all learned a ton about the bigger issues. So maybe we can focus on that. Maybe, Jeannie. Yeah, you know, Jeannie, I think the interesting thing that those of us who are part of the so-called ed reform movement, many of us have become the new status quo. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm actually concerned about is our willingness to 
deeply examine some of the tenets that we had put forward. Like for example, even when we talk about accountability, is it possible that we made a mistake by focusing so heavily on testing? I'm just asking, the, I'm, not, I'm not saying that testing is not important. I'm just saying that we get ourselves into a box that we're now trying to dig out of. And so what, what, what I hope is gonna occur and why I find a conversation like this refreshing for me is that, that we're not gonna get stuck in protecting uh, institutional arrangements, even those that we help create, because those, those, those arrangements, arrangements may not now be workable <laughs> in a, a, a totally different environment. So I think, I think we have to be open to, to stand with purpose. Like Lisa said, I mean, looking for people who care about kids, and some of the arrangements that we thought would work to reach that purpose, we may now have to step back from because it's clear that they haven't or they haven't in the ways that we thought that they would. So final true word or two. And that was awesome, Howard. Parent is listening, wants to somehow do something to help solve this problem. What do they do? A word or a quick phrase? Howard, Mickey, Kevin, Lisa, JC. I think they got to double down on love for their children and that they really have to fight to make sure that their children are being respected and loved with whatever the tools are that we come up with to try to advance their learning. And I think they saw, even under the worst possible circumstances, they got a front row seat to seeing their kids uh, have that aha moment in learning that they may not have had a, a chance to witness before. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to that and find ways to make more of those, regardless of what the circumstances or context is. And you can almost not go wrong uh, by following that. Ask questions, seek better answers, listen to that voice in the back of your head. Yeah, and I think they, they need to understand their options for uh, educating their child in the best way uh, that that child needs to be educated. And there's not a, a uh, one size fits all. So they need to vote with their feet. I would say if you're not getting what you think might be optimal, it probably is out there. Go, go looking. Um, and for those of us who support these schools, if we know it's not optimal, we got to figure out we got to figure out how to get those families into situations that are. Well, my friends, the old Christmas song says it's the most wonderful time of the year. You have made this the most wonderful time of my year. Mm. It's been so extra special for uh, for me and I know for all of my listeners to hear and have this great conversation with you all. My dear friends, Howard Fuller, Kevin Chavis, JC Heisinga, Lisa Keegan, and Mickey Revenaugh, thank you so much for joining Reality Check. I wish you and all of yours a blessed holiday season. And here's to a better 2021 for everyone. Let's get out of 2020. Merry now. Christmas. 2020 cannot get away fast <laughs> That's enough. enough. <laughs> Bye, all. I hey, love you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.